0: Okay, good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming to the library, Um, welcome. My name is Troy Swanson, I'm the department chair of the library and one of the organizers of our One Book program. Uh, This is a special treat for us this year uh, for a couple reasons. First off, we're reading the book, um, Illegal, Reflections of an Undocumented Immigrant by Jose Angel N. It's a fabulous book, um, but it's also very unique for us because it's written by one of our former students, by an alumni. And he writes about his time at moraine valley Um, additionally um, that's those are nice things but the bigger picture is that it's connecting to our national debate in um, some ways that i think are kind of profound so we're entering an election cycle immigration undocumented immigration especially is becoming a very hot topic and there's all kinds of things going on in our media and we felt that jose's book sheds light in personal local ways that other texts do not and it's a very accessible understandable well-written book and i gotta say um for those of us in the faculty circles um, i'm very proud to say this is one of our former students who wrote this book and hearing him talk today getting to meet him today i'm also very proud of it's clear the impact that this college had on his life and i think um, that's good for all of us that are here day in and day out trying to uh, make a difference it's nice when we hear those stories that feedback hey you did make a difference so thank you Jose for that um, from the beginning so um, the book is available at the bookstore obviously it's available for checkout in the library um, Jose's career is entailed and life comes through in this book but after Moraine he left went to UIC attended grad school worked in the professional world and he's gonna talk to us a little bit about that um, and we're very honored and um, glad to have him here so with that I'll stop talking and um, please, a round of applause to welcome our guest, Jose Angelin.
1: Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It is such an honor to be here today. Back in Marine Valley after so many years. I, uh, I think I left in 2000. So it's been a while, it's been a while, and uh, this is a different place from the one that I remembered. And it's a place that I, I value very deeply because he really transformed my life. And it, it, I mean, I, I don't have words to express it, but he uh, gave me a chance to really reconstruct everything. I, I'm the first person to ever go to college in the whole history of my family. So, Marine Valley gave me the opportunity to start that career. And uh, coming here today is it, it, really, it, I mean, it's really humbling for me to be able to come and share my, my experience with the students and to to be able to, to express my gratitude to the faculty here at Maureen Valley. So, uh, my former professors are sitting right here. Justin in his bed. Tom Sullivan, Janice Hill Matula, they were all instrumental in my formation, and I, I thank, you. thank you. So I wanted to share uh, a little bit of the reading of the book with you today, and, uh, and then after I, I do a little bit of reading, I, um, we can engage in conversation, because I, I think this is a very important topic that we can all relate to in one way or another, maybe even in more ways than we realize. So that's uh, kind of what, what I want to do today. My life in the shadows began some 17 years ago. It was a hot April night in Tijuana, that border siren that lures both migrant and tourist with promises of boundless prosperity and unchecked lust. That night, I joined a numerous army, an anonymous army, Under the infinite depth of night, and guided by a sneaky coyote, we moved, slowly descending the slopes flattened nightly by the illicit weight of millions of other shadows who preceded us. The night, a legitimate chance at the American dream. What better way to attain it than by penetrating America by night? The stretch between Tijuana and San Diego is long, very long. And it is as treacherous as it is beautiful. It is unlikely that anybody who has ever crossed it will easily forget it. Its desert-like landscape is bound, is bound to carve itself equally and to body and soul. Once this turf is trodden, the tiredness The awe and the terror experienced along these trails become permanent memories. Some take away a cactus scratch that eventually scars. Others momentarily succumb to the sheer magnitude of the heavens, the number of stars, the depth of night. A few are left behind to join the landscape. This dark wonder. For many, like myself, this arid world, these steep hills and deep valleys provides us with our first hike ever. It is also our first view of, of such broad sky, our first communion with the infinite. It was probably under pristine and glittering skies like this that Immanuel Kant, bewildered, conceived his mystical dialectic between the starry heavens above and the moral law within. I, lacking all philosophical insight at the time, simply wanted to pause and contemplate this fragment of galaxy, but the coyote had other plans, and we kept pressing forward. Human industry adds its own accents to the native landscape. From the top of a hill We watch a long line of people advancing hurriedly in the valley ahead of us. Some 200 years earlier, pushing westward in this very spot, they were being considered pioneers. But the journey they have embarked on came too late. And they are not heading west, but north. And that alone is their disadvantage and their loss. If they were in other latitudes and times, based on the determination and enthusiasm that filled their march, one would be inclined to think of them as troops or pilgrims. But here, they're simply shadows. Suddenly, from a neighboring hill, a series of lights turn on simultaneously. Some come from trucks parked at ground level, others the sand flickering rap- rapidly like a furious shower of shoring stars. For those unfortunate souls, this is as far as the American dream will go. Will go. Way up on top, we talk and hide. We wait. So one of the really difficult things You know, one of the great challenges for adults like myself, when you start learning a a language when you're like 20 years old is basically learning it It, it, because you know the language that you speak, your vocal habits are already formed. Learning a language as an adult can be a challenge. One of the disadvantages of learning a language as an adult is that one's tongue has stiffened. The mastery of a new language requires an elastic tongue, a responsive and lively tongue. And mine is now robotic and language. At 20 years of age, when I began to study English, my vocal habits were already formed. The new prospect was exciting. But for a tongue accustomed to an ebb and flow from different depths, the twists and swirls of a new language were and still are overwhelming challenges. In my new language, my tongue stumbles. I utter, utter screeching noises, no matter how much I might love the English language. It's girl sounds, the biting of the lower lip. The buzzing sound, the vibration of the tongue, the oral wealth that pours like honey out of others, all that has proven to be beyond my linguistic abilities. And the fact that I can complain about it in writing brings no consolation. (laughs) So I grew up in a house with no books. Actually, we had two books. We had an atlas that sat on the coffee table, you know, and that from a very early age taught me that there were beautiful and faraway places that I will never be able to travel because people like me, you know, with the people from my own background don't travel. We, I mean, that's one of the things that happens when you're working class, you know, third world country a citizen. So but the other book was the important book in my house. It was a Bible. And in fact it was so important that it was kept behind a glass cabinet. Nobody could approach it except for my grandmother, you know, who every week or two came around it and dusted off. That was the extent of uh, of my contact with the world of books until I grew up and came to Moraine Valley, basically. You know, starting at about 28 years old or so, 27, 28. I can't remember what uh, how old I was. But it was here when I when I actually started doing some reading and uh, you know building a foundation of what uh, I was going to become. Sitting in a classroom full of people some 10 years my junior, I was immediately dazed, confused and blinded by the light of Plato's allegory. It was my first encounter with philosophy. I am like one of those people in the cave, I remember telling myself while sitting at my desk, mesmerized. I felt a metal ring pressing around my ankles and the weight of invisible chains binding me to the darkness. My bewilderment followed me for months outside the classroom. And it was such that, while at work, I felt that my obligation as a thinking being was to question the motives of the cooks when they demanded that I hurry up with the plates. Ha, I saw my quicker scrubbing will make any difference in the great scheme of things. Didn't they know that the essence of things was permanent and unchangeable? That motion is an impossibility, because between one point and another, there is always a middle point. And from that middle point to another middle point, there are an infinite number of middle points. Tranquilos, I felt like saying. We're not going to get anywhere. You're all being deceived by your senses. Or should I simply comply with their urgent request and remain aloof and unaffected? A different story or a different theory, that of Heraclitus, assured me that the person they were screaming at earlier and the one doing the thinking were two completely different people. I felt compelled compelled to engage the cooks in Socratic dialogue to try to, to prove whether the plates they demanded were actually what they thought, thought them to be or if they'd been living in a lie all along. Chained in the cave, they were being fooled by shadows. An idea like that would certainly confound them. But then, Anticipating the reply, Dejate de chingaderas apúrate con esos pinches platos, cabrón. I dropped the pursuit of my philosophical inquiries and scrubbed the place harder. By going to college, I acquired a taste for a dimension of culture I never knew about before. Now, I have a special penchant for all things German, from the music of Telemann to the writings of Theodor Adorno. Also now, rather than going to rowdy weekend gatherings with relatives, I have come to appreciate the lonely and quiet times at home. Here, I pour myself a glass of Carmenere. I put some music on and let the wine work its wonders. Tonight, Leonard Cohen has kept me company. A single song of of his has been playing in an endless loop for more than an hour. I like to sit here and go over the highlighted passages of some texts I read in college. The laws of Manu, the Upanishads, the Vedas, the Gita, the whole wisdom of ancient India flowing right here on my coffee table. Whenever my illegality gets particularly difficult, I pull these books down from the top shelf. These books provide me with comfort. They are excellent manuals on the virtues of humility and resignation. Some of their pages tell me that the contradictions and burdens and achievements and frustrations and everything else in life are only an illusion, and they must be. For after living through those pages for a while, I can muster the courage to ask questions like, what is so terrible about being undocumented? I then remember my mother's face, her happy, sad eyes during our first, first video conference. I remember my younger brother's face radiant with the promise of his upcoming graduate, college graduation, and the news I received about my youngest brother, his rise to, stark, to, to rock stardom in the barrio. I remember the last time I saw them. The one was about five or six years old. The other no more than a toddler. The fact that they have a different father hasn't kept them from considering me their eldest brother, the absent brother, the one who lives on the other side, the one they occasionally talk to on the phone, the one who has seen them grow through a series of pictures they kept sending him in the mail. The plight of the undocumented is no illusion. It is distance, clandestinity, criminalization, Vulnerability, fear, lack of mobility, exclusion, uncertainty, humiliation. But the United States has an inherent aversion to stories having to do with impossibility and frustration and sadness and won't allow them to take root on its turf. It is here that one of the most common platitudes uttered by politicians from either party about the issue of immigration acquires true significance. The United States is a country of laws, but it is also a compassionate nation. And so I might not be allowed to travel and be reunited with my family, but the US and its compassionate genius, its technological wonders, won't deny me their, pl- their presence. When they miss their family, other people I know schedule a trip. I have video chat. In spite of the many challenges and difficulties that undocumented people like me have to undergo, I was lucky enough to be able to go to college, grad school, and eventually land a professional job uh, become middle class and uh, but the uncertainty never really goes away. As far as you are undocumented, you're on the brink of the whole dream that you've been building collapsing. So uh, <coughs> It's like living in limbo. That's the best way to uh, I can describe it. one second. The new head of human resources at work decided upon arriving that some order was needed in his new house. Within a few weeks of getting the job, he cut loose a fine thread that had been holding Damocles' sword as a latent thread above my head. And as all things freak, the blade was destined to fulfill its fate. One Thursday evening, he finally fell, and my head came rolling down the office where I've been working and hiding for the past five years. The email I received demanded that I clarify a problem with my social security number. He gave me only a few days. I have been dreading these days since the first day I got the job. I had imagined different scenarios, which varied from the truly civilized to the highly embarrassing, from an uncomfortable conversation or meeting in my manager's office to the abrupt arrival of the security guard behind my chair, ordering me to pack up my things and follow him outside immediately without offering any explanation as to why but everything happened so quickly and so impersonal and was so impersonal that the only thing I could think of was to respond the same way so toward the end of the day I prepared my letter of resignation effective immediately the following day I turned it in and never went back to work again. By the time this book comes out, it will be more than two years since I lost my job. And during this time, I have often wondered how they see me, my superiors, what they think of me. In my resignation letter, I thanked them for their support and explained that I was living to start my own company. I suppose for them, my departure was as abrupt as it was puzzling. What kind of nonsense got hold of this guy? They probably wondered at the time. I had never missed one day of work during, during my five years of employment. So a decision like this, leaving a stable and well-paying job where both colleagues and superiors had shown me nothing but respect was way out of character for me, especially considering that my wife was pregnant at the time, that she had just taken a mortgage on her new house, and that I myself had my condo mortgage to pay. I was gambling my family's future to embark on an uncertain business venture. The next day on Friday, I waited deliberately until everyone left the office to avoid saying goodbye to my coworkers or having to offer any explanations about my sudden decision. I wanted to avoid sad faces and curious inquiries into or genuine concerns about my personal life. We had shared some good laughs at that office, and that was what I wanted to take with me. My bosses, they had been exceptionally welcoming and supportive, always treating me fairly. Six months earlier, they had seen me elated at my wedding. And now, I couldn't get my, myself to look them straight in the face. Better to let them think of me as an ungrateful bastard than to reveal to them. The reality that stigmatizes me. Better to disappoint them by leaving my job suddenly and without apologies than to implicate them in this mess I find myself in. Better to let them have an unfavorable opinion of me than to have them feel pity and helplessness in the face of my situation, my superiors, the earthly trinity whose names I must submit here but to whom I am greatly indebted, both because of their professional support and their invaluable friendship. Thus, assaulted by feelings of guilt and failure, that Friday evening, I took down the wedding pictures I had pinned on my cubicle and gathered my personal belongings. I printed the letter of resignation I had prepared the night before and went to my manager's mailbox. There, I dropped it off, along with my pager, and my badge, and my keys, and everything that had made me a part of that organization, everything that I thought was mine. I looked, to see, I looked around to see if anyone was still there, but everyone was gone for the weekend. I turned off the lights and looked back one last time. Everything was quiet and dark in the office. I had entered that company with the stealth of a thief. And like a thief, I left. So by now, I, I've been living in the States for about 22 years. And uh, as you might imagine, my, my life has changed drastically since I first came. I'm a different person, completely different person now. I will be the first one to acknowledge the peculiarity of my circumstances. I have been lucky enough to find my way into the social fabric of the United States, and this is my satisfaction and my loss. The world I knew when I first came to the US has been turned on its head. The person I was has been completely transformed. Now, when I contemplate the adventure of the young immigrant breaking through the border almost two decades ago, he is almost unrecognizable. Such boldness, such confidence in the face of uncertainty. I think of him now and can't help but feel nostalgic. He is as ambitious as he is naive, his head full with pecuniary ideas. In more than one sense, he fits the the profile of the typical Mexican immigrant perfectly. His education is minimal. and He comes from a socially disadvantaged family. Like most migrants, he is driven by earthly ambition and believes the mere access to the United States, even if it means sneaking through his back door to be the panacea for all his problems. He has no idea what the future has in store for him going from one menial job to another, learning English, going to college, becoming a professional translator, owning a condo, writing a book getting married, losing his job, and becoming a father are all things he can imagine at the time of his transgression. All he can think of is the endless night before him, the heavy legs, the promises that await him on the other side. So he runs and runs until he disappears into the darkness, into the long night of America. Thank you all for coming. We'll take some questions if you have them.
0: So if you have questions, raise your hand. I have a microphone so everyone can hear you. Yes,
2: Yes. All right. So so when so when you left your your ho- your homelands, uh, you said it was Uruguay, right? I was what again? Uh, Uruguay. Uh, uh, when you left your homelands, which was in Uruguay, uh, Mexico. Me- Mex- Mexico. Uh. Yeah. Have you ever Have you ever considered like ever, ever like revisiting? You like I. You probably sa- said it that you um, have you ever ever considered to revisit your, your lands or to to talk to the to the to the community or wherever you grew, grew up about your experience or or no plans for that.
1: Yeah, so that that's a really good question and uh, it goes to the very heart of the problem because people like like me who cannot ever afford or allow to come with uh student visa or a tourist visa to the U.S. can go back. Because if you go back, you might not be able to come back. That That's a great problem. Uh, people don't realize that. But it's, I mean, it has to tell you how big this problem is. My own grandmother and my mother, many years ago, about, you I, I got married about five years ago. And we didn't even try for them to come to the US because we knew that their their visas will not be, you know, they will not go through. But they tried like 10 years ago to get a visa. And my my grandmother, you know, I I spoke to her this weekend over Skype. And she is an elderly woman. I mean, she applied for a visa and it was a night. And for my mother, the same thing happened. People. Who are poor? Who are you know working class? Meaning that you know they they can't really afford this kind of a lifestyle. What the American government wants when you go and apply for a visa, what they expect of you is to basically be middle class. So you have to show that you either own properties, that you have a bank account that you have a stable job for, for them to be able to, to issue a visa. And if I wanted to do that when, before coming here, you know, so I could be able to go back to Mexico to, to, to to eventually, I, I will not be able to. That, that, that will be impossible impossible for me, because I, I don't have any of that. And if the people who are undocumented, like, like me, who come without a visa have all that, then there will be no reason for us to be here to begin with. Right, so I don't go back to Mexico. That's a short question. Can go back.
2: Oh, okay. I was I was wondering because like sometimes when you need to talk about problems, sometimes like wherever you come from, if you come from Germany and immigrate to like say like France and then like talk about your experience about like moving there and then you come back to Jump Germany like many years to talk about your experience. So you don't have any plans to go back to Mexico and talk about like like the things that you that you know and from your experience to talk about to share about like to sh- to share at least or acknowledge about the problems or anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could and I have great plans. I, I, okay. I, um yes, I I know. I
2: just I just I I I know that you can't go back in. I do some, and I do and I'm and I'm sorry that you can't. Yeah. So, no, is there I, other questions yeah. over? I
0: see. Yep. We, thank you for your question. Yeah, Give everyone a chance. I, uh, I know in the book you're quite critical of the Obama administration and their um, policy on immigration, or like the lack of attempts to actually make progress on that. Right. And I assume that you're critical of the uh, Republican Party's answer to this question. So, my question is what do you? Do you foresee any progress on the issue of settling the question of the undocumented immigrants in in the US?
1: Well, with the uh, uh, current debate on immigration right now, I mean, the the only thing that I'm grateful for is that it's actually happening, that people are actually talking about it. You know, now there are problems in the way people are talking about it because they're raising a lot of animosity, you know, and uh, but uh, hopefully, I mean, and they're playing with the fears of people. You know, they're, they're talking that, they're saying that I, people like me, are criminals, are rapists, we come here to take advantage of the system, and none of those things are true. People come here to work. You know, no matter your level of education, it doesn't matter what kind of uh, education you have, you know, people have a lot of common sense. You know, it, 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 if people knew, that the best jobs to be had were in El Salvador. People go will go there, to, in order to, to find jobs. But people come here because they know that there are jobs they can do, and that other people are not doing. We come here to get jobs that pay five, six, seven dollars an hour, and that other people are unwilling to do. You know, I mean that's the bottom line. You know, there there are other jobs like in agriculture, for instance, that people just don't want to do or will ever, ever do. They're so hard. They're really hard. They, they don't want to do them. So I don't know how it's going to play out. I mean, we know how it's playing out right now. What the solution for it will be, I do not know. I mean, you, you hear all different positions right now. You, know? you, you listen to Scott Walker. He wants to build a, another wall with Canada and uh, Richie, he wants to track us like a FedEx FedEx package. So, I mean, all these people, they're just desperate, you know, to to catch up with the front runner right now. That's the level of desperation they have, and he eventually will deflate, because the the, the Republican Party is too smart, you know, to nominate a person like that, that's so divisive, that that can't capture the the vote of uh, other constituents. So I do not know if we'll be able to reach an agreement, or the politicians rather, because they are the ones who determine the lives of people at the, you know, at the end of the day. But I, I hope they come up with some sort of solution. Right now, you, you hear the other Republican, what's his name, uh, Carlson, I think. That's the Carlson, the, the surgeon, I think, yeah. So. He's proposing that uh, to do a guest worker program with us you know and uh, I, that's one of the best solutions that there are for Republicans I think that uh, the one that's more more sensible right now is uh, Jeb Bush because he he's got the experience of you know living on the border of being married with uh, somebody from a different culture and understands the economic impact too of uh, of immigration, I, I, you know, it's just so upsetting to to listen to people talk about immigration as though it's is the the end of the world. You know, they want to build this huge fence. People are just gonna dig a tunnel. People are gonna come in. They're gonna find a way to do it. It's not what they think it is. Uh, they forget. They forget that. People who are undocumented pay taxes. They pay taxes. Every single one of us does. Like, for instance, I'll give you a number. I usually don't like to talk about numbers because I want to talk about concrete people and their experiences rather than numbers because it gets too abstract. But last year, the Social Security Administration announced that during the last 10 years alone, during the last 10 years, they had retained a total of, 100 billion dollars from the paychecks of undocumented immigrants, and we're we we do not have access to that money. Do not have access to it. 100 billion dollars. Where is that money going? Well, I, I think it's going to finance the the uh, to finance the, the retirement of uh, the baby boomer generation, and that's okay. You know, we're young. We can work. We can do that. But just don't demonize. You know. The, don't be so yeah. Can I just ask the follow-up? Yeah, the sure. Just
0: Microphone. Um, so what does it say about American society yeah. that politicians are appealing you know, through this message of ever more and more sort of uh, ridiculous uh, idea, like building a, a wall uh, across the border with Canada as like one-upping the competition. But
2: what does it say about
0: American society that, that they're doing this in order to win support?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, but that's their job. That's their, the job of politicians, right? Uh, they appeal to, to whatever their message is to, to, if it's their constituency, right? I mean, right now we, we, hear, we hear Trump, and who is he talking to? to? He's talking to a very specific group of people, right? He's not talking to the overall uh, American population, I hope that he's not. Because uh, I think there are other kinds of people. And there's other questions I know, so let's move on. Yes.
3: Thank you for sharing your journey. And I find it very courageous that you could come and speak and um, even write this book, knowing how difficult it can be. Now, I I somewhat understand your plight. I am from the Caribbean. And well, I came here as a student, and I got married to an American, which is how I gained citizenship. But I also have family who is here illegal. And I, I, I did a little bit of research, and I wanted to know, because when I realized you got married to an American, I was hopeful. I was like, well, this is his opportunity <coughs> to be able to gain um, residency and citizenship. But then I started to do a little bit more research and realized it wasn't as easy as that. Have you explored that? And what have you been told? Um, And how is that process, is that even an option for you at this point,
1: being married to an American? Sure question, is it's impossible. There's no process for people like me who came in through the border with no authorization. What uh, President Obama was trying to do just recently with uh, DAPA, which is uh, his attempt to keep families united rather than breaking them apart like he did with two million families before. You know, it's stuck in court and it will fix this problem. You know, if if you have uh, an American spouse or American children, you'll be able to somehow fix your situation. You know, after going through a background check, after paying your taxes, after learning English, after doing all those things that Republicans like to hear. So, uh, but what happened? Well, what happened was that he got stuck in court because a very smart judge in, um, in Texas said, "No we can't do that. you know we can't do that right here because it's going to get too expensive. issuing driver's licenses for people. that's his argument. That is his argument. And uh, you know ever since it's been stuck in court, it, it was announced last November, I think, and it's been almost a year and he's stuck in court because he can move forward. Well. A simple answer to him is: Have us pay for the driver's license if you're worried about that. I'll pay you two or three hundred dollars for it. That's not a problem. But that's not what they want. No, no. That I mean that. What they want is they want us out. That that is what uh, Donald Trump is saying. He wants to round us up and send us back. Yes. I'm coming. This is
4: going back to the visa, about what you said about the visa, getting the visa. Uh, my dad, he was, he's been here since 1990. Uh, he's been working and everything for the visa. Uh, me and my family, we came here. I was here. He, I was three years old. We came in '95, and we came on the visa. And we wasn't mid, we wasn't mid class or anything. We was poor. And my dad, he was working for five years to bring us over here. I had three brothers at the time and two sisters, and plus my mom. Uh, I was just a baby getting absorbed and everything. As I grew up and everything, uh, we had to get our citizenship and everything. And I'm still an immigrant, you know? And immigration is kind of hard. I still got my green card and everything. I still just, the only thing I need to do is get my citizenship, that's it. And uh, just, it's kind of hard about the citizenship nowadays and back in the days and all the Obama, Obama's, Obama's uh, corporation and uh, the Donald Trump and everything about immigration and everything is kind of hard on us and I got family in Mexico and I got family in uh, Spain and it's kind of hard for them. I'll get back to you uh, once uh once I <laughs> once I get back. I just that's all I wanted to say just
3: basically.
1: Yeah. Well, th- there are some people who get lucky and they do get visa to to you know to either it's visit. Yeah. But I mean the the chances of uh, of you getting them you you got lucky, you know, uh, uh, not many people get them. And not just me, just my family too, you know. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah, some people are lucky, yes. Oh sorry. Um, since you're like open about being illegal, um, how are you not like in trouble for it?
1: How oh, I'm not like, in trouble for it? Like not. I it. don't
5: know how to like phrase it, but like, do you know what I mean? Like since you are like openly yeah. an illegal immigrant, like how did you like? How is that like? Possible. Yeah. <laughs> how is that yeah. possible?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I mean the, it, it was it was never it's never easy, being undocumented. Uh, we prefer to use undocumented. Rather than illegal, there's no nobody is illegal, and I I, I realize that I used that that uh, that word right here. There's the title of the book, but that's I'm using it to make a point. You know, no human being can be illegal. How can you? You know, so uh, it became a moral imperative for me to write this book. And when I first wrote it, I think some of you were at the presentation. Some. Uh, I never shared this with anybody before, until I came up with it, and some of my former coworkers were there. They didn't know about it until that moment when I, you know, after two years, after over two years that I that I left my left my job. Uh, but I mean, this is a risk that has to be taken. People need to talk about this. We need to be honest. have an honest conversation about this problem because it affects people. It really does. And i tell you how. About 150,000 American children lose their parents to deportation every year. Every year. They they go into foster care, families they don't know. Um, Their parents never come back. In Chicago, there's been many, I don't know how many, but there's been documented cases of children committing suicide. Go on the on the internet and find out, educate yourself, because they're never gonna be able to see their parents again, and their parents, you know, going back to their home countries in Honduras, Salvador, they don't want to take their children with them. Why? Because there's basically a war going on in Mexico too. I mean, there's a, a drug war going on in those places, and people think that uh, you know, leaving their children with other people here is better than taking them back or when some parents are deported for something as simple as going down to Walgreens to get diapers or milk for not having a driver's license. When they try to get back, they can't. And they're found in the desert. Sometimes the remains are found in the desert because they can get back. I mean, that, that is the extent of the problem that we're facing. So, this is something that we need to talk about. You know, and I mean, whether or not um, you know, I get in trouble or not, you know, it's not really important. It's not really relevant. I mean, there are over 10 million people like me. You know, what happens to me, what happens to, 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 to me ultimately only matters to my family. You know, but what does that say about you as a society? <coughs> So that's, that's why I'm, I'm here today. Yes.
6: And I want to thank you for being here today um, and say I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. I wish I would have brought it with me today so you can sign it for me. Okay. My name is Suzanne Nasser. Um, I work here on campus in the counseling department. Um, I actually think you weren't critical enough of Obama in your book, um, especially considering that under his um, presidency and administration, Uh, more undocumented individuals have been deported than uh, under any other administration. I appreciate the statistics that you shared with us today about um, undocumented individuals paying taxes, because I think folks need to hear that and need to be reminded of that, and bringing a human side and the human touch of the lives and the journeys of undocumented individuals. Thank you. So thank you for all of that. My question is, In the counseling department, I feel very – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'm not sure what the word is, but I I feel touched by individuals, students on our campus that feel safe enough to come into my office and share with me uh, that they are an undocumented student. And they struggle with um, their journey, and they struggle with what they should study. And if they do go into this major or this field or occupation, what's the likelihood of them getting employed? And they want to give up and they want to throw in the towel and move on um, from here, from this institution or reconsider going on after here. You persisted and it did you well. What advice might you have for those students?
1: Well, I tend to be a little idealistic when it comes to education. You know, I, I think you should be passionate about the things that you study. And, but the thing about you know your college education is that it works out. It worked out for me being an undocumented immigrant to go into the humanities rather than pursuing a different, a different uh, profession in a different field. Uh, so I think you, when I think back, sometimes I. I hesitate and think that I should have studied something else that I should have studied something more profitable but then we will not be having this conversation right now you know and this is so important and this is something that uh, you know you can impact people in many different ways in whatever uh, field of study that you go into as long as you put your heart in it I am sure about that that that's as far, you know, as much as I can tell you, yeah.
5: Hi, just a quick question. Yes. Um, first, I admire your writing very much. It was very emotional to hear you read from the book. Secondly, I spent 10 years working in Chicago Public Schools, and one of the schools I worked in was 100% Mexican, many of them legal and illegal. And I always remember them being very nostalgic, and you mentioned that a bit in, when you were reading from your book about your nostalgia. And I never knew what to say to them because their hopes and dreams often at, in their youth are to go back to Mexico. They, as youth, see Mexico as a beautiful place to live and a beautiful place to be and almost see America as not their home. So I'm wondering if you could um, address just that nostalgia, if whether you, your nostalgia is still very strong to go back or you feel this is not <coughs> your home and what you might say to a child right that feels Mexico is you know their dreamland for them in many cases because they remember it and yeah. they just naturally want to
1: go home <coughs> I have a I have a friend who is a retired physician and uh, who is a prolific author as well uh, who has written something along the lines of uh, immigrants know a special kind of sadness that is only particular to them you feel you can never feel quite at home anywhere that you are anymore, and that's a reality that we have to learn how to live with you know you are somehow uprooted from the place where you were born for whatever circumstances economic you know social you know where there's a war going on political whatever however you know you go to a different place and you 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 have to live somehow, and uh, there's a tension. There's always gonna be this tension within you, you know, that tells you, you know, I wish I was there, but I'm here. But all that you can do is that y- is do your best with the things that you have. With the things that you have, you know, you, you, in my case, it meant doing my best with the education that I had access to, and you know, the the the. I don't know the the just the memories that I that I had from my homeland, even if I couldn't visit it, you know. But the the fact that I couldn't visit it didn't mean that I couldn't help out, you know. So that might be something that you wanna say to them, you know. If you still, I mean, I don't know about children. I, I wasn't a child when I came. I was I was an adult, you know, and I came for economic reasons. So for children, it might be different. I, I can't really talk to to their experience, but. Uh, one of the things that you can say to them is, look, here you can meet people from all over the world, from all over the world, which might not b- be the case if you go back to Mexico. You are gonna have some wonderful opportunities. You're gonna go on experience uh, things that otherwise you wouldn't have, you know, access to. So that that might be something that you could tell them. Right here, and then we can go back to you in a minute. Yes. Hi,
5: um, my name is Yarisa Torres and um, I was born here, but my family are, are immigrants. And growing up, I've noticed that they use different identities. And I was just curious if you actually use your name to, like, if you actually, if that Jose N is actually your name.
1: That's my name, and you you will see that N is only my initial, and uh, that but that's the actual initial, my my last name. Uh, when when I first came up with the with the book and uh, omitting my last name was uh, you know it was also making a point a political point because in this society really people like me are nobodies you know I'm a no one so that, that, that's what it means just the lonely end right there that until this society can recognize me as a full member I'm not gonna come out and tell my last name. I mean that that was making a political point on my part. Other, qu- other question. O- any other questions? Do you wanna follow up on your question?
4: Despite the uh, the immigration service and about that, my friend right here, his name is Sam, and he's here on a visa. And for for the like the immigration thing, I mean the, un- the undocumented thing. It's very hard because to, to live out here undocumented, it's hard to live out here, to get a paycheck, to get Social Security, to get anything. And everybody out here, my cousins, they work out here. They work to strive to live to support their family. And people that discriminate against Mexicans and all the other ones, they think they're drug dealers. They think we are part of the cartels and everything. Well, that's not and we we 're going to stand up one day we 're going to all stand up we are we are humans we're all blood and I just got a question for you: What made you come to the United States? What made you change your mind? What made you stand up and be the person you are today
1: well that's actually more than one question and i 'll be happy to answer them. I came to the u s when uh when I was about twenty I was going to turn twenty, and I came when I realized that there was no hope or future for me in mexico period i mean that's When you have to work two months and save your, you know, have all your savings of two or three months' work, you have to be able to afford a pair of shoes. Then, you know, you then you know that you really can't do anything with your life. At that point, you're 20 years old. So that's why, you know, after seeing many people coming up north and doing well, I wanted to, you know, to have a chance to do the same thing. So that's that's uh, to answer the the one question and. Why did I become the person that I am? Is because I, I, I came here, specifically, to this campus. And here, um, something happened. I found a universe that I never had access to before during my life. Uh, I became acquaint- acquainted with reading, which is not something that we, that we do in Mexico as a habit. We don't read. I mean, children in Mexico don't visit Libraries like this one, 48% of children in Mexico from ages 12 to 17 have never been inside a library in their lives. Isn't that sad? And you have some of the richest people in the world in Mexico as well. It's not that the Mexican government doesn't care about, uh, about education. You'll see the, the children of senators and governors, they go to Princeton, Oxford. The University of Chicago, you know, they, they care about it. You know, they, they care about education because they know education is power. So this generous institution changed my life, and that, that you know, that everything else that has happened since has has been because of this. And the other point that you make about us um, being portrayed as criminals—that's a question that I've always had since I first came to the States and my understanding of uh, English was very rudimentary. How do you make the connection between a group of people that come here to work and crime? And you know, it's something that's beyond me. But I guess is the through the use of media, you know, having access to to TV and radio, and uh, I don't know, just having big groups of people listening to what you say, I think it changes the perception of people. But after you've been part of a, a given community for a while, for instance, there, there was a that wonderful article just recently on the New York Times about people in Iowa and what they think about undocumented immigration and how they have changed you know, their perception of what they thought they were to what they are now. You know, there was a person who was completely prejudiced and he acknowledged it himself. He was like, you know, I, 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 I'm very prejudiced. And it is wrong for all these illegals to be here. But I tell you what, they're hard workers. He <laughs> goes to the heart of the problem. You know, I mean, we come here to get jobs. You know, we may not have come the, the way that you wanted, but there's no way. And that is a problem. There's no end of the line. You want us to go by to. Uh, to the end of the line, show it to us. Where is it? I wanna see it. In the meantime, let's stop the animosity and the rhetoric. and Let's really move on and, and achieve what I want is uh, comprehensive, comprehensive immigration reform. Who knows if it's gonna happen or not. But uh, anyway, so that's the answer to your questions. Yeah.
0: Other questions? I have a question. Um, I discovered your book through two of my uh, retired colleagues, Jan Hill and Tom Sullivan, both of whom are here today, your former teachers. And they sent me a review of the book and said you should check this out. This might be good for us to do, and I love the book. Um, So much of the book, you can tell your love of philosophy comes through. And I'd love to hear, because this is a, a topic that everyone is afraid of, or doesn't make money, or whatever, but I've loved, I love philosophy. How you discovered philosophy as someone who says he did not start out reading, family doesn't read. How do you find philosophy? How do you access philosophy? How do you come to understand it and then clearly integrate it into your life story um, in this book?
1: Well, I think I, uh, I discovered philosophy by accident. I signed up for philosophy thinking that it was gonna be the study of something else. <laughs> I sat down in this class and found out that it was Plato, and he was talking about a cave full of people who are looking at shadows, and, uh, and they think that's reality. What they're seeing in front of them is reality when the reality is happening, is happening somewhere else. All they're seeing is this projection of shadows that they imagine uh, what that life is. And I was sitting there, and I was like, wait. This is too weird, but it's fascinating at the same time. How is that possible that this is not real, you know? So reality is not what we see. I mean, and in many senses, you know, the, the conversation that we're having here today kind of reflects that. That reality, you know, the reality that many people do live is not what they tell you on the media, you know. So that that's probably what uh, caught my my attention initially going into into philosophy, you know, and. Since I was undocumented when I came here to Marin Valley, and I'm still undocumented today, you know, I uh, I didn't socialize with the people with with my classmates, but I made a lot of very good friends. You know, they had names like Seneca and Cicero and Shakespeare and Camus and Emerson and Thoreau, and they all live downstairs. Go check them out. <laughs> They're good. They can change your life. They did. You know, they changed mine. I know that. So.
0: We love the library plugs. So yes.
1: Um, other questions?
0: Yes. Uh,
4: you mentioned how, uh, you know, you uh, know, the previous question was about philosophy. I wanted to know uh, what would you say is your favorite philosopher, and you know, what uh, work
0: would you recommend for some of us to start reading?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that you can check out, and. Uh, know, One of the first philosophers I ever encountered was an American philosopher by the name of Ralph Waldo Emerson. So uh, one of the things that caught my attention about Ralph Waldo Emerson was the, the way that he uses language and ideas and the way that he can talk, he can have a conversation with people from the past. Seriously, it's like he's engaged in conversation with them. And I thought it was so daring and so beautifully done as well. But uh, and there are so many, like read, for instance, Albert Camus. Albert Camus is one of my philosophical he- heroes of all time. Or go back and read Seneca and Cicero and the Stoics. Uh, if I have to give you a recommendation for, for, for reading, is that whatever is appealing to you, whatever can touch you in, very partic- in a very particular way, you know the, there are things that you're gonna have to read in school no matter what. Right now I'm reading some uh, uh, some things I wish I wasn't reading, but I have to read for school anyway. But uh, if you if you're gonna start reading, for instance, read that wonderful book uh, entitled Walden by uh, Henry David Thoreau. That's that's a great book. Or read uh, Jack London On the Road. I think. I there, there are many. Books that you that you might read, but that's one of them. There's a wonderful book. I don't. I think that the translation into English is called um, Mexican Ulysses. It's by Jose Vasconcelos. He's a Mexican philosopher. You know, reading that book was a true revelation for me. So the, there are many books from many different traditions, and uh, they will all impact you in different ways. And I think. What's important is just to take what's really, you know, meaningful to you and that take that message from them and keep it. And everything else you can just put it aside, I guess. I think that okay. other questions? I was just gonna ask since it's so wait. relevant.
0: Nope. You no, the rules. Wait, wait. You. Okay. I Thank was you. gonna say that because it's such a contemporary topic, of uh, the immigration and uh, uh, escape from war in Europe I was wondering if you see that impacting the
5: attitudes in our country here
1: well sort of I mean y- you hear you know the candidates talking about building a wall you know there's this person saying oh I'm gonna I'm gonna build a huge wall it's gonna be so huge nobody's gonna penetrate it I won't mind having a beautiful door uh, you will think that there's an invasion of people coming to the States. And I might have read something along those lines at some moment, but, you know, the truth is that immigration from Mexico right now, you know what it is? Native immigration to the U.S. at this moment, people are not coming to the U.S. anymore. Americans are going to Mexico. More Americans are going to work in Mexico City, in Guadalajara, in Monterrey, because those are cities that are quickly changing. You know, Guadalajara is, is becoming the, the Silicon Valley of the Americas. So there are a lot of people from Korea, from France, from Germany, from the US and Canada going to Mexico to work. So, but there are people who are professionals. You know, in uh, computer science or engineering or whatnot, you know, so, so they, they don't have any problems. Uh, but with the rhetoric that's going on right now, you know, people have that fear that they're being invaded. When they, What they don't realize is that people are already here, and they're part of society. We are part of society. You know? We mow your lawns. We scrub your toilets. We cook your dinners we babysit for you. This is the kind of work that we do. So that kind of fear-mongering, I mean, it is good for politics, but it's not good for the society as a whole.
0: Okay, so I
1: think we will stop there. Don't run away. How
0: about a round of applause for Jose? Thank you. (laughs) And before you leave, I want to invite Carrie Pantle. up. Carrie works in our alumni relations office, and I'll let her say a few words. When we have alumni on campus, we cannot let them get away. So come on up here.
6: Hi, everybody. Um, first of all, like everyone, I want to thank you so much for coming out. Thank you so much for being part of the conversation. I think we all learned a lot today, and it was great to open that dialogue, um, on behalf of the Office of Alumni Relations, I would like to present you an alumni mug. Um.
2: Oh, great, thank you.
1: Just
6: to say thank you very much.
1: Well <laughs> this is great, thank you so much.
0: It's a great talk. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Well, thank and, you uh, Jose will be here to answer questions, sign books, etc. so thank you. All right. thank you.